0: Welcome to Sidebites, the podcast that makes you think. So in this episode, we encounter part two of the rise and fall of behaviourism. So this is the fall and essentially really looking at how behaviourism went from being the predominant um, approach in psychology to then uh, hitting that kind of downward turn in the 1960s that meant that it then became superseded by the cognitive approach. So what we'll do in this is is really sort of explore some of the, the key elements to behaviourism, which, which really led to its downfall, um, but also the, the sort of lasting um, the remnants of it, which, which have gone on into our modern thinking of psychology. So in this episode of Psych Bugs, we're looking at the fall of behaviourism. Why behaviorism fell is perhaps more of a moral, philosophical, and societal one, um, rather than one that is scientific. In some regards, you can see behaviorism in a lot of things that psychologists today do. Of course, the cognitive revolution, although perhaps they might not be the first to admit it, um, kind of grew out of behaviorism and, and took some of those principles uh, of scientific research, but underpin them in the belief that it would be possible to measure mental processes by examining uh, the mind experimentally. So, essentially, behaviourism hasn't necessarily fallen away from from the scientific discipline of psychology, but certainly I think that the kind of social structures, the social backdrops, meant that behaviourism evolved and, uh, you know, and, and sort of became uh, superseded by by other approaches. So this this is very much kind of my own perspective on this. This isn't necessarily, um, you know, the answer to the question, but hopefully it'll just kind of get you thinking about some of the wider context of, of behavioural psychology. Let's take a little what, moment with the, the social backdrop here, because really in the 1960s, it was kind of in its in its heyday. You know, you've got the work of Skinner, um, really sort of pushing behaviourism forward as, the, as this ideological um, stance in terms of understanding human behaviour. And, and Skinner, of course, was this real advocate of the notion that you could actually use behavioural techniques for the benefit of society. And we talked about this in the, the last episode, The Rise of Behaviourism, and his book Beyond Freedom and Dignity, where, you know, Skinner essentially advocated the use of, of reinforcement uh, techniques as a way of creating a utopian society. Indeed, that was the the whole um, reasoning behind his book Walden 2. So, you know, essentially that that was kind of there, but but let's just take a little moment and, and think about that sort of ethically, morally, you know, do we do we like that idea? Because bearing in mind that, that Skinner didn't believe that any that we had free will, so he believed that we were just this kind of we were very predictable, it was possible to predict us, it was possible to control us using these principles. You know, what what sort of things are going to be um, in, integral in, in making that happen? And and what sort of, you know, environmental stimuli? You know, we don't necessarily have control is, is essentially what, what Skinner was was arguing. But of course, this time when, when Skinner was kind of you know sort of academically kind of at at his height and, and you know and there was his work and you know moving him forward at the same time he had his critics and somebody like like Noam Chomsky for example who was you know quite a vocal critic of Skinner and you know his work on, on language acquisition essentially argued that, that we are kind of hardwired for language and that there was a, you know, a sort of natural predisposition towards learning language through the, the sort of rudiments of what we encounter in our environment were, you know, totally opposed to what Skinner was arguing that essentially we just learn through these reinforcement links um, or stimulus response links. And so, you know, you, you started to get these kind of more philosophical battles where people were kind of saying well you know behaviorism is only interested in these minute elements of behavior and actually human behavior is much more complicated than that it goes much further it goes deeper than just you know layer upon layer of stimulus response bond and so even academically people were starting to say you know actually behaviorism is not looking at that deeper level and really that's I guess where things perhaps started to fall apart and then we have the wider social backdrop because of course what else was going on in the 1960s there was a great push for for freedom and um know and and for sort of people to be embracing their their humanity and and their freedom and of course at the same time you've got the work of um of carl rogers or or abraham maslow and the humanistic approach in psychology who are kind of saying you know we have free will actually and we we can reach this point of of self-actualization you know we can reach our full potential and we can make the right choices and we can be coached and guided and treated through that so that it's not just about you know the um those things on the outside that are controlling us and so there was already this kind of you know sort of backlash starting to build really against behaviorism and of course yeah the the kind of free love sort of hippie culture as well in the background would suggest that behaviorism was just not going to be a big you know was not going to be a good fit for society anymore and so this element of things i think actually started to build that momentum and what we get here is something that we would call a paradigm shift. Now science is you know based in certain philosophical principles and on the one hand you have principles of, of kind of scientific progress being slow but sure you know the idea particularly kind of karl popper's notion that you know scientific discovery is all about kind of chipping away at your theory you know rubbing the edges off you know an idea so that you can get to really the core of what it is so this is that process of falsification Whereas at the same time in the 1960s, you got Thomas Kuhn, who was arguing that actually there were these paradigm shifts that would take place. So that essentially you would have a a viewpoint which was dominant and then evidence would kind of gather up against it and would gain momentum to the point that eventually things would change. And actually, I, I feel that that's kind of what happened with behaviourism that not only did you have intellectuals kind of raising questions but you also had the kind of social side of things the 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 backdrop of people kind of saying actually you know I don't want to be told that I am an automaton I don't want to be told that I'm a puppet or a robot and you know I, I want to believe that I have free will and so there was this this sort of secondary element to it, I guess, where people were kind of you know, that was it was inspiring people. Now the question of how much that influenced those intellectuals I think is quite an interesting one because of course we like to consider that science is, you know, is objective, that it's non-biased. But you know, we all live in this world, we all live in societies, and you know, for me I, I can see how behaviourism works and I can see all of the evidence that supports it working. But at the same time I feel morally and ethically challenged by the notion that I don't have free will and that I am just a product of my environment. As far as I'm concerned, that has quite wide implications because essentially that means that I could do something wrong. I could break the law, let's say. And then I could say, well, that's because I've learned to associate X with Y and, or I was reinforced in this way in the past. And those experiences have brought me to this place now where I made that decision. And so this is kind of the issue, I guess, with determinism from that sort of moral ethical standpoint, is where do you get the culpability and the responsibility for your behaviour? And I guess, again, you know, we we can go back to our previous episode on, on Milgram and, and that idea of agency and autonomy and whether or not, you know, we are in charge of our actions or whether or not somebody is directing them, um, whether that somebody is an authority figure or whether that somebody is just the wider sphere of the environment, so anyway that, that that's just kind of the you know the the sort of side um, uh, the, the sort of sideways look of, of uh, look at this whole discussion of the, of the fall of behaviorism and I guess I think for people listening it's it's kind of for you to to decide sort of where you where you place yourself in it and how that might affect the way that you judge um, the the move or the call for for behaviourism to be essentially um, diminished over time. So, essentially, this this moral-ethical dilemma... um, as i said was was perhaps underpinning some of the academic questions that were being raised about the validity of behaviourism and the and the longevity of it really as as an approach in psychology because of course psychology was moving all the time and and at this point in the twentieth century it was moving at quite a rate of knots as as sort of people developed more and more understanding. Um, social learning theory by Albert Bandura was was perhaps one of those steps into a new way of thinking about behavioural psychology. And if you know of social learning theory, you'll know that um, Bandura took things a little bit further from just that basic stimulus response behaviourism. You know, classic behaviourism essentially argued that you as the individual, experience those things for yourself directly in the environment. So you learn the stimulus response bonds, you are reinforced or you are punished and that affects your behaviour accordingly. Now, Bandura argued that actually we could look to the way that we learn from others, that we observe others and whether or not they get reinforced or they associate something um, can also impact us as well because we will see what they're doing, we will pay attention to them and we will start to engage in that, uh, in a sense, vicarious reinforcement, as it was termed by Banjira. So we might. You know, carry out a behaviour because we've seen somebody else get rewarded for the same thing. Now, this was actually, although this doesn't seem like a massive leap from behaviourism, it was quite counter to what behaviourists believed about the way in which we learnt. And essentially, what it was introducing, and Bandura did this quite subtly, um, was was cognitive processes. Bandura called it mediational processes because essentially, you know, obviously, behaviourism had always distanced itself from cognition. But really, at the uh, at the core of it, this was kind of the beginning for uh, for for allowing for a discussion about the role of cognition and the role of thought, mental processes, in this this sense of of learning and and behaving in particular ways. And so, Bandura had really paved the way for a change for a shift in the way in which we think about um, psychology that, that psychology wasn't just about this objective uh, observation of behaviour, this was now about those underlying mental processes and of course if you think back to our last episode we talked about Watson, you know Watson was very much of the opinion that the mind was irrelevant, we needed to sort of push that to one side and just focus on observable Um, objective behaviour but as I've already alluded to uh, quite a big change um, came about during the 1960s at Harvard University um, which has become known as the cognitive revolution where a number of of scientists at Harvard University or cognitive scientists as they sort of referred to themselves um, basically started to look at the idea that it would be possible to understand the mind and to understand what we're thinking by carrying out laboratory experiments where we can infer from the results how the mind has got to that answer. So how somebody has responded in this way and what those mental processes look like. The most simple example to to illustrate this would be Miller's seven plus or minus two, which is essentially a, a very very simple scientific experiment, which was designed to test the capacity of short-term memory. So, giving people increasing lists of numbers, asking them to repeat them back until they can no longer do it accurately, so in the correct order that they've heard it. Um, and then seeing what the results are and what he found was that on average most people had a short-term memory capacity of about seven items but it was kind of with a range between five and nine so that was kind of where most people fit and most people were distributed. Now this is a really simple piece of research but of course from a behavioural perspective it would be like why you know why are you doing that you know trying to measure a mental process you can't see how memory works so you shouldn't be doing it but from the point of view of cognitive psychology the argument was that actually well <laughs> I, I, I kind of can um, I, I, you know now I've done this piece of research I can actually see where um, you know where most people fall and therefore I can suggest I can infer how large the capacity of short-term memory is and so this started to well, this gave gave rise to this approach of cognitive psychology, which really, I guess, even now, is 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 probably the the sort of predominant way of thinking in psychology to to this day. Um, of course, it has been moved forward slightly so whereas in the past and certainly during the 1960s actually seeing mental processes was was near impossible but now with the use of of imagery um, of imaging techniques we are able to see uh, what parts of the brain are active during different tasks and we can start to deduce you know what is taking place in the mental life of the brain and so this is what we would call cognitive neuroscience and essentially our Perhaps, you know, we are, we are due a paradigm shift. It would just be interesting if we end up going back to behaviourism. Obviously, I say that kind of half joking, but then I think at the same time, one has to acknowledge that most psychologists, in the way that they approach research, are behaviourists. In a sense, you know, they, they have that, you know, that underpinning in the way that they view, um, view their, uh, the ideas of human behaviour. And, and of course, any research looking into behaviour will probably involve some of these principles and some of these ideas. Indeed, I, I could see. Um, certain aspects of behaviorism making a comeback um, and essentially, if you think about the field of behavioral economics, which has certainly grown in its uh, in its interests over the last few years um you know this is this is looking at predictable behavior um, that people engage in, in in terms of their spending and how um, manufacturers how how businesses sorry are, are using that that knowledge to understand their customer, to understand the client better and to understand how to target them in particular ways. And so, you know, essentially that's quite an applied area of psychology, but it really finds its roots in behaviourism. And actually, that's kind of cool. So this brings us to the close of our second part, the rise and fall of behaviorism, and essentially to sum up, the, the main point that I want to make is that you could view this as something that occurred scientifically through the process of paradigm shift or just through the overwhelming alternative evidence out there that maybe the mind shouldn't be ignored and, and maybe behaviourists should spend more time looking at what is going on mentally and not just looking at those ob- observable behaviours because actually they don't tell us a great deal. But I think at the same time it's really important to take into account the social backdrop to consider the that influence the the social influence on the way in which psychology moved uh, away from this behaviorist idea because obviously behaviorism in its sense is pretty restrictive you know it's it's kind of arguing um that, that you have no free will it's arguing that you are very determined by environmental forces and you know in a future episode we will explore this idea of free will and and why you know the question of you know our our freedom is such an issue for us um and and, and perhaps whether it's always been an issue for us but certainly um for now um this has been psych the podcast that makes you think